If you'd open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that's where we're going to be. And this is going to be a two-parter message here. I was hoping to get through the first 23 verses, but it became clear this morning that wasn't going to happen. Um, so the outline that uh, Bob printed out for us, you'll just want to hang on to that for next week as well. Uh, because we'll only be getting through uh, verse 18 this morning. So it's, it's a lengthy passage, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to work through it as we go. But um, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to start out by asking you, if someone were to pose you the question of what is the, the greatest passion in your life, how would you answer that question? What is the greatest passion in your life? Most would give answers like this, my spouse, my kids, my career, my favorite sports team, my hobby, so on. But if you were to ask the Apostle Paul what the greatest passion of his life was, he would have told you that it was the gospel, that it was Jesus Christ and the good news concerning him. And he would tell you that if you are a Christian, that will be your greatest passion in life as well. The gospel. That we are sinners, we deserve the wrath of Almighty God, but God himself sent his Son to become a man and to live a righteous life in our place, to obey his Father perfectly, in his thoughts, in his attitudes, in his words, and in his actions, to the point to when he was baptized, the Father spoke out of heaven and he said, this is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased. God never said that about anyone else except his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, though he earned life by his righteous life, he gave up his life on the cross. He laid himself down. He took the sins of his people upon himself. He became a curse and hung on that cross to pay for the sins of his people, to satisfy the wrath of his Father that was resting upon sinners like you and me. And after he died, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, proving that what he did was enough to save forever anyone who would put their faith and trust in him alone as their Lord and Savior. That's the gospel. And if you and I are not passionate about that, we have not meditated on that near enough. At the end of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, after Paul was exhorting the Corinthians to be careful to not become a stumbling block to their fellow believers by dining in idle temples, Paul claimed at the end of that chapter in verse 13, chapter 8, verse 13, Paul claimed that he would willingly never eat meat again if that happened to help a weaker brother or sister persevere in the faith. In chapter 9, though we are beginning a new chapter, we are not beginning a new topic. Paul is going to help these Corinthians understand why he would be willing to do 
what he said in chapter 8, verse 13. And by giving himself as an example, Paul is going to call these believers to have that same willingness to deny oneself. And Paul begins by asking two rhetorical questions to which the answer is obvious. Chapter 9, verse 1, he asks, Am I not free? And coming on the heels of chapter 8, verse 13, Paul likely means, Am I not free to eat what I like? Yes, in Christ, Paul is free to eat what he likes, not being bound by the dietary laws of the old covenant. The second question he asks is, Am I not an apostle? Yes, Paul is an apostle, and being an apostle entitled him to certain rights among the churches. And Paul is going to use these two issues, his freedom and his apostolic authority, to highlight what he could be gaining for himself, but which he instead decides to deny himself for the sake of what is best for others in Jesus Christ. The Corinthians, along with us, are prone to use their freedom and their rights to serve themselves. Paul is going to teach us, by his example, how to use our freedom and our rights to serve others in the spread of the gospel. In verses 1 through 18, we'll see Paul speak of his authority as an apostle, that he'll willingly lay down for others. And then in verses 19 to 23, which we'll go through next week, we'll see Paul speak of his freedom that he will willingly lay down for the sake of others and teaching them the gospel. But first, we're going to look at how Paul is willing to lay down his rights as an apostle. And by giving us that example, we are being commanded from this passage to be willing to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of bringing the gospel to those who need to hear it. And we're going to see that in the first 18 verses. And in these 18 verses, to further break it up a little bit to make it easier for us to follow, we're going to see two reasons why we should be willing to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel. And the first reason we'll see in verses 1 through 14, and it's this, to cause no hindrance to the gospel. We should be willing to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel in order to cause no hindrance to that gospel. So let's look at these first 14 verses. Paul asks that question in verse 1, Am I not an apostle? And he proves that he is by asking two follow-up questions rhetorically. The answers to these questions, like the first two, are obvious. He says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Clearly, Paul was an apostle because he fulfilled two primary qualifications that were necessary to be an apostle. He had seen the risen Lord Jesus with his own two eyes. And you can read about that in the book of Acts. Secondly, Paul had founded the church in Corinth, which was the principal work of the apostles, founding the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles were foundational to the church. 
Paul had been the one to break ground in Corinth by preaching the gospel. And he had instructed those fledgling believers for 18 months. And by doing so, he had successfully founded that church in Corinth, which was a mark that this man is an apostle, God blessing his work in that city. In verse 2 of chapter 9, Paul says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Even if others did not view Paul as an apostle, either because they were opposed to him for some reason, or because simply he had not been the one to found the church in their city, at the very least he was the apostle to Corinth. He had founded them. He had led them to Christ. And the fact that these Corinthians had been born again, saved, forgiven of their sins, granted eternal life, united to Jesus Christ, they themselves were the seal marking Paul out as an apostle. So it's clear, Paul is an apostle. And Paul is instructing, as we saw last week in chapter 8, He's instructing these believers to do what? To refrain from dining in idle temples so as not to cause their brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. And that's not just a light request. We made mention last week or the week before how feasting in idle temples was a very common social function in those days. You would have weddings at temples, funerals, other social events, And the food that would be served was food that had been sacrificed to an idol. And since the feast is being held in a temple, it was in an atmosphere of worship in which this feast was being partaken of. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to do that anymore because you're going to cause a brother or sister in Christ to fall back into idolatry. Paul, in effect, was calling on these believers to willingly become social outcasts. And that's not an easy thing to willingly take upon yourself. Some in Corinth may have questioned whether Paul really knew what he was asking them. Paul, do you know how hard this is going to be? It can be hard to follow the lead of someone who asks you to do something that is very difficult when you don't think he understands what he's asking you to do, or when you think he's unwilling to do the very thing that he's asking you to do. And so in verses 3 through 14, Paul is going to show them that he is willing to do what he's asked them to do, and in fact, he's been doing it right along. What he claimed back in chapter 8, verse 13, that he'd be willing to even give up eating meat forever for the sake of his fellow believers, that's not an empty claim he's making. Paul had already counted the cost of following Jesus and had fully tasted of the suffering and the hardships that come with taking up your cross and following Christ. So verses 3 through 6 say this, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? 
In verses 3 through 6, Paul is asserting that as an apostle, he had the right to receive support from the churches that he ministered to. He had the right to expect to be provided food and drink to sustain his body as he ministered the gospel. He had the right to get married and bring a wife along as he ministered to these churches and expect that those churches would support his wife as well. He had the right to not have to get outside employment in order to make ends meet. And apparently, the other apostles and the brothers of Christ, they were benefiting from this right. They were receiving support from the churches that they were ministering to. So Paul is asking, do I not also have this right since I am an apostle? Of course he had that right. And just in case there's any doubt about that, Paul proceeds to move or to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that he has such a right and that such a right is valid and appropriate. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, "Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock?" Well, that's pretty self-explanatory. It's obvious that as a general rule, those who are involved in a full-time work have their bodily needs provided for through that full-time work. Otherwise, they won't be able to perform that full-time work for very long if their needs are not met. That's a very easy argument to understand. I do a job, I get paid for that job, so that I can keep doing that job. And Paul doesn't stop with simply using human reasoning or drawing on real-life examples. He continues in verses 8 through 10. He says, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he surely speaking for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. When Paul quotes, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. And there, the Israelites are being commanded to allow the ox, their work animal who's threshing the grain for them, to allow that ox to feed on that grain that he's threshing as he works. And when Paul says God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Paul's not denying that Deuteronomy 25.4 means what it actually says. But he's showing a legitimate and primary application of that verse. If God is concerned that even an ox receives wages for its labor, then how much more concerned is he that a person receives wages for his or her labor? In Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear you are of more value than many sparrows. 
God's primary concern is not about animals, but about people. In fact, if you were to go back to Deuteronomy 25, and you were to go back actually to chapter 24, and read from Deuteronomy 24, verse 6, all the way through Deuteronomy 25, you would find a collection of all sorts of laws. And these laws, for the most part, are addressing issues of mercy and justice. And each of these laws has to do with how one person treats another person in Israel. And Deuteronomy 25.4 sticks out like a sore thumb when it's just thrown in there, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. There's no other command like that in that whole context. But God is indicating that in the nation of Israel, mercy and justice was to be so all-pervasive. It was to characterize that community so profoundly that even the animals were being shown mercy and justice. And if even the animals were receiving that, certainly the people would be receiving that, which was God's main concern. And Paul brings that out here in 1 Corinthians 9, that people are God's main concern. The ox, the, the fact that God has taken care of an ox just proves that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Paul says, the plowman ought to plow in hope. The thresher ought to thresh in hope. They ought to work with the hope of being able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. And Paul is saying, shouldn't the same be true for me as I labor among you in bringing you the gospel? Can I not expect to partake of the fruits of my labor? Verse 11 in chapter 9, he says, If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If Paul was giving out the infinitely valuable truth of the gospel to those he ministered to, would it be too much for him to ask the church to sustain him with earthly materials that were of far less value? When we come to, chapter, or to verse 12, when Paul says, If others share the right over you, do we not more? It's apparent that other teachers had been provided for by the Corinthians. That right that they had, they had exercised it. They had partaken of material goods that the Corinthians had given them to sustain them as they ministered among them. If others who had not planted that church had a right to that support, Paul is asking, don't I have more of a right to that support? He says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? But then look at what he says. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So in that verse, in verse 12 of chapter 9, Paul is saying, look at my indisputable right. Look at my unquestionable authority as an apostle and look at how I laid down that right at great cost to myself for the sake of the gospel. 
Remember, he's trying to get them to lay down their rights for their brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's showing them how he has already done what he is asking them to do. It cost Paul greatly to deny himself the right to material support from the churches he ministered to. And that kind of self-denial, that was a common practice for Paul when he went to specific churches. Turn back with me to, to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 4. And look at what he says, starting in verse 9. He says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. So Paul says that he is toiling, doing labor for himself to support himself, and yet he says we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. Apparently, there were not enough hours in the day for Paul to both minister the gospel and work enough to provide a decent living for himself. He couldn't afford enough, he couldn't work enough to afford to properly clothe himself. And yet, he still refused support from the churches, even under such conditions. Next, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. Paul says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, so not just labor, labor and hardship. How working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Next go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship. We kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this. That's what he's been saying in 1 Corinthians. Not because we don't have the right to to this kind of support from you, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. You have never met a harder worker than the Apostle Paul. He worked night and day. 
He worked to support himself even when he knew he wasn't going to be able to work enough to support himself enough to have creature comforts. Why did he put himself through that? Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, And at the end of verse 12, so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul does not say how receiving support from the Corinthians would hinder the gospel. Uh, commentators offered some suggestions. Maybe Paul wanted to avoid having unbelievers think that if they receive the gospel, it's like them signing up to have to support this man who's sharing the gospel with them. As the founder of the church and the primary gospel proclaimer in those early days in Corinth, that would have potentially been a very real concern. If Paul's the only one preaching the gospel, if he is the point man for planting this church and he gains new converts, he can't really just turn around and say, hey, you need to support me now. That's not going to look too good. Maybe Paul wanted to avoid confusing the gospel message of free salvation in Christ. Again, it'd be pretty awkward for Paul to offer free salvation and then turn around and say, hey, you've got to start paying me now. Maybe Paul wanted to distance himself from professional speakers who sold their services. When we come to 2 Corinthians, we will see that this is an important issue. There, Paul, he speaks of his refusal of support as a distinguishing mark, setting him apart from the false apostles who are greedily taking advantage of the Corinthians. And Paul is saying, look at the difference between me and them. Don't doubt me, doubt them. Maybe Paul wanted to avoid the misunderstanding that may come from receiving gifts from people. Those who supported him may begin expecting preferential treatment from him or begin to take credit for what God was doing. And in Corinth, where you already have, as we saw in chapter 1, people saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, trying to hitch their wagon to their favorite teacher so that as their favorite teacher gained notoriety, so they would gain notoriety because of their support of that teacher. If they financially supported Paul, that would be more bragging rights for them. And Paul, by not receiving support, protects them from that. Then in verses 13 to 14, Paul lists two more proofs that he really did have this right. Verse 13, he asks, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So new covenant ministers, like the apostles, them receiving support from the people they ministered to already had a precedent set for them in the old covenant where the priests ministering to the people would subsist off of the offerings that the people brought. There's already that precedent set in the Old Covenant. The next proof that Paul gives is by far his strongest, and that's in verse 14. He says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. That's the crowning proof 
of Paul's argument here. Jesus himself directed those ministering in his name to receive this kind of support from those they ministered among. For example, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew's Gospel chapter 10, In this chapter, Jesus is sending the twelve out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, and he gives them instructions. Listen to the instructions he gives in verse 9 of chapter 10. He says, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. The worker is worthy of his support. Next, turn to Luke chapter 10. In this instance, Jesus is sending out the 70, 70 of his disciples to go to cities that he's planning on visiting, but to go there ahead of him to prepare the way for him. He gives similar instructions in verse 7. He says, Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. That's the Lord's direction for ministers. So this right that Paul is claiming that he does have is a right that was given to him by the Lord Jesus himself. And no one can really argue with that. Paul had this right. But back in 1 Corinthians 9, the very beginning of verse 15, Paul says, but I have used none of these things. As an apostle, Paul's right to receive material support from them is incontrovertible. You can't argue with it. Yes, he has that right. But Paul gave all of that up for the gospel's sake. Back in chapter 8 and verse 9, Paul had said to these Corinthian believers, but take care that this liberty, literally right, it's the same word that we've been seeing throughout chapter 9, right. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. These believers thought they had a certain right to dine in idol temples, a right that Paul will later show they actually did not have that right. Paul, in chapter 9, he has been demonstrating that he has legitimate rights, inarguable rights as an apostle. And he's telling them that if he, as an apostle, laid down his legitimate rights so that the gospel would not be hindered, then how much more should they be willing to lay down their questionable right to dine in idol temples so that their weaker brother would not be destroyed? Paul is giving himself as an example to be followed. Paul gave all that up, which caused him to have to endure all things, as he said in verse 12. Endure all things that he may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. 
What about you and me? Are we willing to do that? Are there certain activities that we like to do, certain questionable activities that we feel we have the right to do, but that may cause a fellow believer to stumble, or that may hinder our gospel witness to an unbeliever? Paul was making very clear what his singular passion in life was. It was obvious. Do our words and our actions show others that Jesus Christ is our singular passion above all other passions? That he is the most important person in our lives? That he has total control of our lives? And that he is the one for whom it is worth laying down our lives? We have to answer the question, what is more important to us, Jesus or our rights? What's more important to us, the spread of the gospel or what I get to do on a Friday night? We need to be willing to lay down our rights in order to remove all hindrances from the spread of the gospel. That brings us to verses 15 to 18, where we find the second reason for why we should be willing to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel. And it's this, to gain the reward of serving others the gospel. To gain the reward of serving the gospel to others. We see this in verses 15 to 18. Look at verse 15 again. Paul writes, but I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things that it may be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Paul has argued so forcefully that he does have these rights that he needs to make a clarification that is equally as forceful to show why he's not actually asking them to start giving him these things. He's not making this argument in order to get them to start giving, these, giving him these things. He's making this argument to make it crystal clear why they should be willing to give up their rights. And to make it crystal clear that he's not asking them to start supporting him, he says that he would rather die than to have someone make his boast an empty one by giving him stuff. Now what is this boast of Paul's that he'd rather die than lose. He doesn't spell it out for us here in verse 15. We know it's not boasting in himself. Remember chapter 1, verse 31, where Paul said, Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he's not boasting in himself or about himself. But this is a boast he's willing to die for. And when we were in verse 12, we already saw that Paul was willing to work himself to death over what? The unhindered spread of the gospel. He's willing to give up his life for the unhindered spread of the gospel. And here in verse 15, he says, I'd rather die than have someone take this boast away from me. So it seems as if the boast is very close to something to do with this unhindered spread of the gospel. 
And when we come to verse 15, we see that this boast of Paul's, it's possible for this boast of his to be nullified or to be made void by man. Man can do something to rob Paul of this boasting. And he tells us in verse 15 what he wants to guard against being robbed of. He says, I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. He wants to guard against having anyone start paying him for spreading the gospel. That is what will make his boast void. People to start giving him stuff. So his boast seems to be this, that I preach the gospel without charge. The without charge part is Paul's boast. And the next few verses that we'll see will show that conclusion to be correct. And just to restate it, this boasting of Paul is not a self-serving, look-at-me kind of boasting. This is a boast that serves the interests of Christ. This is a boast that facilitates the spread of the gospel. Paul does not want anyone to say to him, okay, you're just preaching the gospel so that you can get paid, so I'm not going to listen to you. You're just a huckster like all the other hucksters. I've heard one, I've heard them all, I don't need to listen to you. Paul can come back and say, no, no, I'm giving you this gospel free of charge. I don't want anything from you. I just want you to know Jesus Christ. And I'm willing to die for this to happen. Don't give me anything. That's his boast that he can make that removes hindrances for the spread of the gospel. That he can preach the gospel free of charge. Verse 16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, notice he doesn't say preach the gospel without charge. He's just talking about the bare preaching of the gospel. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Why not? For I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul has no grounds of boasting for simply preaching the gospel in and of itself. Because that is something he must do. That is something he's compelled to do, that he's constrained to do, preach the gospel. He says, necessity has been laid upon me. I am under compulsion. That word for compel or necessity or constraint, it's the same word that was used back in chapter 7 and verse 26, where Paul talked about there are some circumstances in which it's best not to get married. He says it's good in view of the present distress. That word for distress is the same word. Constraint, necessity. There Paul was saying that there can be external circumstances that make it necessary for one to not get married. He used this word again in chapter 7 in verse 37. When he said, he who stands firm in his own heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin, and otherwise not get married or not give your daughter in marriage, he will do well. The first condition, or the second condition in verse 37 is being under no constraint. There he's talking about internal circumstances or drives that might compel you 
to get married. And he's saying, as long as you don't have that, yeah, you can abstain from marriage. But in both instances, there's circumstances that lay a necessity upon someone to do something or not do something. And that is what is happening here. Paul says in verse 16, I am under compulsion to preach the gospel. Necessity has been laid upon him. What is this necessity? What are these circumstances that are compelling him to preach the gospel? Well, look at what he says at the end of verse 16. He says, For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is an expression that someone uses when there's an impending judgment looming over him. For example, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord seated on his throne, what did Isaiah cry out? He said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah expected to be destroyed when he saw this vision of God because no man can see God and live. And Paul is saying, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. If Paul were to stop preaching the gospel, he would expect judgment to fall upon him. He would expect to be ruined if he does not preach the gospel. Jesus Christ had commissioned Paul to preach the gospel. Paul had no choice in the matter. The Lord of heaven commanded him to do something, and he didn't get to think about it or say, let me get back to you on that. He had to do this. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 26, where Paul gives his testimony of the Lord laying his hand upon him and commissioning him. Acts chapter 26, and starting in verse 12, Paul is recounting this incident. He said, While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's like the Lord is behind him with an ox goad, prodding him forward to do what he's telling him to do, and Paul's resisting. Verse 15, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And then look at what Paul says in verse 19. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring, both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, 
and then throughout the, all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. This was not optional. Now turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. The context of the passage I'm about to read is Jesus telling his disciples to be dressed in readiness, to live in the light of the return of Jesus Christ, to be faithful. And in verse 41, Peter asks, Lord, are you saying this to everybody, or does this have special application for us 12 disciples? Obviously, what Jesus was saying applied to everybody, but this passage, Jesus is putting his finger, and he's putting it right on the chest of Peter and the 12 disciples. Verse 41 of Luke 12, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? That's a description of the apostles. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, that they were to view him as a servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God. Verse 43, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. The Lord did not entrust more to anyone else than he entrusted to the apostles. Therefore, their accountability was through the roof. Paul says, woe is me if I don't do what the Lord has commanded me to do. He's under compulsion to do this. It's something he has to do. doesn't matter if he wants to or not, he has to do it. And then he explains this in verse 17, back in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. If preaching the gospel in and of itself were something that Paul could say yes or no to, then he could expect a reward. He could expect a payment for preaching the gospel. However, if preaching the gospel is something he was commanded to do, a matter in which he has no choice, then that task is not something for which he can expect a reward. Instead, that task is a stewardship that his master, Jesus, is entrusting to him as his slave. And he ought not to expect a reward for doing what he's supposed to do. 
I should have had you stay in Luke because I want to read from Luke 17. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but Luke chapter 17. Jesus gives a parable that perfectly illustrates this that Paul is saying in, in, uh, back in verse 17. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 7. Jesus says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, When he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That's what Paul is saying. I've been commanded to preach the gospel. I can't expect any reward for this. I'm only doing what I was commanded to do, being the slave of my master Jesus. Back in 1 Corinthians 9, in this verse 17, Paul had shifted his terminology from boasting to reward. And he carries on that terminology in verse 18, where Paul asks, What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So, see, preaching the gospel without charge, that's his boast. And he explains here that there's a reward attached to that because preaching the gospel without charge, the without charge part, that's the optional part. Because the Lord said, yeah, you should receive support. And so Paul is getting to choose whether or not to accept that report or that support. That's the optional thing, preaching the gospel without charge. When we looked at verse 16, where Paul basically says, I have to preach the gospel. That may have led you to believe that Paul didn't really want to preach the gospel. He had to do it, but maybe he didn't want to do it. But verse 18 shows you that not only did Paul have to preach the gospel, but he also really wanted to preach the gospel. You see, Paul did not want to settle for only doing what the Lord was commanding him to do which is just preach the gospel. He wanted to do more, preach the gospel without charge. He wanted to go above and beyond for his Lord. Preaching the gospel was simple obedience. However, laying down his right to earn a living from the gospel, that was doing more than was required of him. That was optional. That was grounds for boasting, for receiving a reward, for receiving payment. And this is not a selfish thing. Paul's not looking for more for himself because what is the reward he's chasing after? What then is my reward, verse 18, that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. That's the reward. Serving others, making the gospel more available to others, that was the payment. That was the reward that Paul was seeking. You and I, we tend to want bigger bank accounts, more free time, more health benefits, more funds, more energy, more time to spend on ourselves. Paul wanted more opportunities to spread the gospel. Paul 
laid down his rights as an apostle so that he could maximize his service to Christ and to the church. When was the last time you or I laid down what we felt we deserved for the sake of bringing glory to our Lord and building up his church and winning the lost? Do we want to go above and beyond for our Lord Jesus Christ? Or do we just want to hit that bar and as long as we hit that bar, we just kick up our feet, take it easy? The problem with just wanting to hit that bar is that we usually drastically undershoot that bar, which is what the Corinthians were doing. When you think about yourself, you end up living for yourself. Paul was only thinking about Jesus Christ and living for Christ, and he wanted absolutely to do what Christ had commanded him to do, and if he could do more, he wanted to do that because God in his son, had saved him from his wrath, delivered him from sin, slavery to sin, and had called him into service to him, the greatest privilege of Paul's life. He had reached the pinnacle of being a Pharisee, but that was nothing compared to serving the king of kings. And he had the opportunity to do more for his Lord, and he took every opportunity he could to do more for his Lord and to serve his bride, the church. At least for myself, I don't think I, that describes myself. But Paul is saying, this is my example for you to follow. And, and this is an example for all of us to follow. Jesus Christ needs to be the crowning passion of our lives with no close second. And if he's not, it may be that you don't know him yet that you're still dead in sin and you're still worshiping something other than the one true King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that case, you need to come to the cross. You need to look at what Jesus Christ did to save sinners and you need to turn from living for yourself and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Or it may be you are a believer, but you are not taking the time to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have got to get back in this book. And you have got to get on your knees seeking him, fellowshipping with him. And you've got to make a priority of gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when you come and you fellowship with the body of Christ, you're getting more of Christ who inhabits each one of your brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to put forth the effort to look at Christ. And the more we look at him, the more we will love him, the more passionate we'll be, we will become about him. Because he's too lovely to not fall more in love with him. Let's pray.